everybody. The discourse in energy markets has shifted firmly towards transition to cleaner fuels. We've all been grappling with uh, these challenges over the last uh, year or two. And this year's energy market outlook for both the medium and long term, uh, which uh, has just been released, talks entirely about how um, how this transition is going to take place and what the key impacts are going to be on energy markets. Um, joining me today, I have uh, Trevor Sikorsky, uh, Head of Gas and Emissions, Robert Campbell, Head of Oil Products, and Matt Parry, Head of Long Term. And between us, uh, we plan on discussing exactly what energy transition would means for uh, energy markets and our views on that. So, Rob, uh, if I may start with you, you know, we've talked about this at length, um, not just internally, but also with clients. I think the biggest challenge for the market is the scale and the underappreciation that what the energy transition means, uh, moving something like 100 million barrels per day of oil, if we are to electrify everything, the scale that's required is just, it's just difficult to even grapple with. So if you start us off by just outlining how we are thinking about it, I think that would be great. Yeah, I mean, scale is 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 so hard to grasp. You know, we can talk about how many Olympic swimming pools are full of oil or what have you. Uh, the image I like to think of is, uh, I remember years ago when I worked in Venezuela, driving by Lake Maracaibo, which is uh, the biggest, one of the biggest oil deposits in the world. It's been exploited for 100 years. And they've taken so much oil out from beneath that lake that they've had to build a gigantic berm around it to stop it from spilling into the uh, into the hinterland of the country because the, the ground is subsided by so much. So, you know, so is this the it's just a colossal amount of oil is consumed just you know every day uh, and of course this this goes beyond oil to other other energy products so you know understanding just the these these giant numbers and the impact on prices is, is probably the hardest part and so you know, on the one hand, it sounds great when you talk about removing a million tons of carbon from the atmosphere. On the other hand, you, you know, when you start realizing that we're doing billions, uh, the scale of what we have to do is immense. And then the other thing I think is that's worth remembering is that the energy industry, unlike many others, is probably, you know, very, very long timeframes on investment. So we've got assets with usable lives that are still stretched in the decades. And, you know, if you're trying to get companies to abandon these assets before the end of their economic life, that that involves uh, some pretty severe intervention in the market um, that, you know, I think Trevor's, Trevor's well positioned to tell us about what that's going to take. Thanks, Rob. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think it's there, there's there's massive scale, and 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 you're trying to do so many different things, and I think that's that's you know the key point is just how many things you're trying to do. You're trying to uh, push so many things into electricity, right? So you're going to electrify a huge amount of things. You're going to come up with some new fuels. You're going to come up with you know a whole hydrogen economy, which doesn't really exist now. You know, you're starting from almost nothing on that. Um, you know, and you are looking at getting rid of the dirtiest of your generation plants. So, you know, you're electrifying huge amounts of sectors, trying to, you know, electrify road, possibly, you know, bits of home heating, you know, bits of industrial process, all of that to be electrified. At the same time, you're losing baseload capacity. And that's just an enormous, enormous kind of undertaking to really begin with. Now, it's interesting, I stumbled across um, 
uh, European utilities uh, have put out, one of them has put out a really interesting kind of view to 2030 and what it wants to do in 2030. And that has capex uh, for that period of about 70 billion euros. And 70 billion euros will get you, of course, you know, you know, a couple hundred uh, gigawatts of, uh, of renewables. It will give you, you know, the start on uh, hydrogen production. It'll give you grid battery storage. But the interesting thing through that, and I think it just illustrates something we call the generation gap, is when you look at all of their projections, although they're kind of trebling the amount of power they're producing, they're not really changing the amount of conventional production they have to do. So all of that investment, and they're basically just keeping conventional uh, power flat. And that's how difficult it is, because you're just trying to push so many things into the year in into that power space. I think that's the critical point, both uh, Trevor, you and Rob are saying. And I do want to bring Matt in here because I think the key message across both our medium term and long term reports is that primary energy demand for none of these really primary energy products that we talk about are peaking in the medium term. Yes, oil does um, in the long term. So <clears throat> this really underscores the challenge of sustaining the supply side. I mean, we've been saying this for years about the impending supply crunch in oil. You know, nobody, none of the IOCs are investing. We believe IOC CapEx will be down again um, this year. So this is a real challenge going forward for the industry, exactly to what Trevor said. Trillions of dollars will go into just meeting potentially the growth, but not about not being able to replace the baseload that we have, especially if we are also trying to retire coal at the same time and trying to electrify everything. Um, so where do these talks about peak oil demand come from? Yeah, the peak oil demand talks really come from this belief that things are going greener, which they certainly are, but the sectors that underpin oil are not so easy to switch. So the obvious one is road transport. I mean, the movement is has started, it started to be made, but the world is still expanding. There's still incredibly low levels of vehicle ownership in emerging markets in India, for example. Um, so the vehicle market will continue to expand. And yes, very slightly it will become more electric, but it's a case of sales of electric cars going up fast, but the fleet being much slower to adjust. And it's the fleet adjustment that impacts when peak road transport demand happens. We have peak road transport demand happening in the very early 2030s, late 2020s. And that is the sort of instigator for oil demand peaking in about 2032. It doesn't then fall off a cliff, however, because aviation and pet chems remain supportive. So the sort of doomsday of oil turning around and falling is, is, is somewhat premature because there's still a fair amount of demand growth still to happen. And underpinning that is that it's really an, still an emerging market story where many people have never been on a flight, have hardly used road transportation, haven't had packaged goods where pet chems come in. So there's a lot of persistent demand support still there. And I think this is the critical thing because supplies are falling away faster than demand is probably going to start peaking. And the other real challenge over here comes from the lack of carbon pricing. And Trevor, you are starting to see more and more markets uh, embracing carbon pricing, but surely carbon has the most important role to play in energy transition. Yeah, and I've, you know, it's it's a really interesting 
there's really interesting political economy around this about why isn't carbon pricing more widely adopted, you know, particularly, let's say, in the US, you know, where they, you know, market based, uh, you know, economics is, is well accepted. And, and it is very hard to get a kind of market based economic solution there. Uh, agreed. And, and part of that is because it is seen, you know, as, as a tax in some ways. And I think this is why you don't get more carbon pricing. Um, and it's, it's less political. Now, when you look at some other places like Europe, uh, you know, his Historically, I would say, you know, less market driven, but, but, but certainly, you know, a real embracing of carbon pricing as a key aspect of the, you know, of what will be and what looks to be a very aggressive kind of, you know, uh, attempt at, at, at energy transition. And, and I think, you know, you, you look at it and you do look at it, you know, as, a, as somebody who wants to trade this and you say, you know, what commodity can I trade? Now, of course, power is about to have a golden age, but power is so localized and so very specific, you know, and there's so many things going on in that. That's a very, very hard thing to do. So you would look at carbon and say, well, carbon's a great thing that I can invest in. And you just have this fragmentation of markets, which makes it very difficult. You've got an offset market, which is probably going to be important because we're seeing lots of, you know, lots of interest in ESG, you know, uh, across the corporate sphere, not just in oil and gas, but in a lot of other places. But a lot of oil and gas, you know, commitments. We saw Shell come out with a, a reasonably aggressive view on 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 offsets in the last uh, couple of days. So. You know, it is a growing sector and I think it is going to be important. I think just the question is why, you know, it would be much better if we could have, uh, you know, a much more globalized kind of pricing of this. And then that would allow, you know, obviously a more efficient kind of allocation of resource and, and the ability to probably more efficiently reach our targets. But even regional carbon pricing, and Rob, you've been uh, looking into the whole LCFS thing in, in, in California as well. But I mean, how do we see oil products demand and refining both, uh, to be honest, being impacted, uh, even if we don't get a global carbon price anytime soon, which is absolutely our house view, but regional and local markets are picking up. And clearly, we can't do short-term analysis anymore without having a view of what is going to be in, in 2030, for instance. Yeah, I mean, California has shown that it's possible to create a a market-driven uh, decarbonization initiative that, uh, that that will bring in all sorts of investment. I mean, we see uh, huge investments around the world to produce renewable diesel for the California market. Uh, as you know, you can get a two hundred dollar a ton credit right now for these sort of things. Now, whether we really want to invest our whole future in moving cooking oil from China to Rotterdam to then make it into diesel fuel to send to China to California. Is another question, or or whether that's going to be something we can scale up because there's not just that, not that much cooking oil in the world, and uh, everybody seems to want to make this stuff. But the point is, these 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 do have an effect because now we're displacing about a quarter of the diesel uh, in the California market for uh, this renewable product, which which means the refining system is increasingly unbalanced. And so it's going to have a cascading effect. And I think for me, perhaps the most interesting thing is what happens when aviation starts to target the same feedstocks that are currently going into California, then you're really going to challenge the uh, the economics of decarbonization in California as it stands right now. But I mean, that is the nature of the beast, right? I mean, if you want, you can decarbonization without relatively high carbon prices makes no sense if you're trying to do it on a market-based uh, you know, direction, because in the end, you have to compensate the investment that is not required in a non-carbon pricing environment. And you also need to compensate the scrapping of existing infrastructure that otherwise has a useful life. So uh, you can't have one without the other. 
Although I will, uh, I mean, yes, none of us can travel right now because of COVID, but I will say I, I'm quite wary of traveling on an aeroplane, which has put some form of biofuels in it. Maybe, maybe, maybe in 20 years time, it'll be okay. Yeah, but yeah, One of them is cooking oil that goes through a hydro tree. The other is dinosaurs that have been crushed under the earth for millions of years. It's the same thing. That's true. That's true. Yeah. You know, we, we need to start... Um, thinking or adapting uh, new ways of uh, looking at things. Uh, Matt, in terms of um, aviation, since uh, Rob mentioned, COVID obviously has had a big impact on our uh, demand numbers. So the base is now lower uh, and therefore obviously the outright level that we get to in 2025 and 2040 is also lower. Um, Aviation being probably the worst affected uh, sector. But we do see aviation picking back up to pre-COVID levels in 2024. Um, But what are the risks around that really? And then do you see this could get delayed even further? Yeah, I think it was all about how things pan out with the vaccine rollout, really. You know, we're predicting quite a big pickup in 2021. But obviously, as the months of 2021 drag on, various governments, you know, force prolonged quarantining at airports, potentially could roll that on slightly to 2022. We still see the same pickup, but will it happen in 21? Will it happen in 22? But And of course, that will drag the tail. So, you know, we were saying that aviation demand will be back to pre-COVID levels by 2024, but you, there's certainly a risk that, that could be 2025. Um, as the mutations get worse, it means people have to maybe have more regular injections. Some countries well behind on that. So that's that's the thing to watch. But yes, you're 100% right. Aviation has struggled more than road transport. Absolutely. And I think the challenge really becomes for oil more and more is that there is no capex to, to match this. And uh, Trevor, you've also highlighted this. You mentioned that we're also getting trying to get rid of coal and then at the same time not investing in oil. So how are we going to meet primary energy demand uh, when clearly I mean, it, it's taken us 120 years to put together the oil infrastructure mm-hmm. that currently serves us? Obviously, it's not going to disappear uh, overnight. Um, but at the same time, you have no investment in coal. Obviously, that's outright declining. Oil, very few are investing. National oil companies are. And that's one of the big themes of our report is that the NOC versus IOC um, side of things. But it, I mean, clearly, this is very bullish for gas. But I do find it interesting interesting that nowadays more and more people are even writing gas off and it's no longer a um, you know, fuel of the future. At best, maybe it's a transition fuel and some people are even saying gas demand might peak as a result. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think this is the big, you know, one of the big tensions in energy transition is if you electrify everything and you get rid of a bunch of uh, the stuff that's already generating there, um, you will still need, you know, capacity and that capacity probably uh, suggests you know, a long transition rule for gas and, and, you know, particularly in the power sector, but also in industrial heat where you think, you know, the hydrogen piece will take quite a lot, you know, will at least take a decade to get to the place where it starts being really commercialized. So gas has this role. And and if you're saying, well, you know, we're not investing in oil and, and a lot of gas production, of course, comes as a result of the production of uh, of oil, then how do we meet a growing, you know, or, you know, how, how do we even meet a flat you know, uh, outlook for gas, let alone a, a growing one, and um, and I think that's the, that's the big challenge because it basically says dry gas investment becomes really important. People have to be happy when they're not investing in oil to invest in dry gas, and it's not clear that you know investors will make that 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 distinction. And as you said, you know, it has gone from 
you know, get rid of ga- get rid of coal and you can use gas and, and that'll give us a big emission saving too when you're looking at net zero, that gas is just still part of the problem. And as part of the problem, you know, it will still uh, have the same kind of, you know, brush painted on it that's being painted on oil at the moment. And I think this is the biggest challenge um, of the energy transition will be how, you know, how do you do an, or- an orderly transition? And I think, um, you know, it, it certainly feels like, this will not be a massively orderly transition. Probably none of them are. Um, but one of the tensions will be, you know, starving uh, those fuels you want to use of investment, you know, in that transition uh, because you're anxious to get to the end game. And that's the challenge. I really think the market is underappreciating. There's so much focus on hydrogen um, and everything, right, on renewables. And we've talked about this, Trevor. It's it's also the lack of financing. I I do see that as a big risk uh, going forward uh, for both actually oil and gas projects. I think banks are pulling out of this sector as well. Um, how how do you? Th- I mean, what are the real risks that not just for oil but even gas supplies? I know gas supplies are abundant including in the US, there is still a risk around us being able to meet some of the demand uh, projections, at least even we've got. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, you would say, you know, yes, some companies can do it on balance sheet, but I mean, those balance sheets, you know, are limited and are getting squeezed and and they won't be anywhere near the size they were with, you know, as you get rid of some of the oil demand. And and I think it's, this could play out even in developing countries. And like you said, at the moment, the NOCs are the only ones kind of propping this up, but the NOCs will require financing in, in, you know, in a lot of those countries, you know, for things like LNG projects and stuff like that, you know, you do see development funding agencies, you know, historically being involved, and those now are pulling out of the fossil sector completely, right? And it becomes much harder to, you know, even do downstream investments, you know, for 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 gas. Let's say it's very hard to to fund, a, you know, power plants and things like this now. Given that a lot of the development banks, you know, are refusing to to to, you know. To, to recognize gas, you know, as a transition fuel or as a green fuel or anything like that, and basically just saying these are the types of projects we won't lend to. And I think that um, it certainly pushes a lot more investment, I guess, towards things they will lend to, which is, you know, renewables and stuff like that, and does hold out, a, you know, the possibility that a lot of developing countries will have to develop without having, you know, fossil generation in their pockets. And, and that that does mean that that development, particularly where costs are now, looks reasonably expensive. I mean, speaking of renewables, I mean, biofuels is going to play a really big part as well, Rob. And I mean, we are starting to get to grips with the challenges around this. Um, it's also, and you've mentioned this when you talked about LCFS as well, there's still going to be strains, not necessarily directly on energy, but more broadly, agriculture versus energy. That fight is probably just going to intensify. Well, there's just not enough biomass in general to do what what people want to do with biofuels. Uh, certainly, to do it cheaply, you know, you could you can have a lot of biofuels if you're willing to pay a very high price. But the fact is, you know, there's there's you know 215 million tons a year of, of produced of, of vegetable oil. That's a fraction of global oil demand. So, you know, we can't, we just cannot do that. Uh, especially as you know, there's there's a lot of other practices in agriculture that aren't necessarily uh, carbon friendly. So you know, just just biofuels alone are not going to be the the tool. If anything, biofuels are going to have to be reserved, I think, for your 
applications where a liquid type fuel is just absolutely necessary and aviation is one of those things where you know you think that biofuels are probably going to have to play a, a big role but but i think the the issue with biofuels is a lot of people see it as a panacea there's a there's not really an acceptance in the uh in the industry or in the broader political community that the the energy transition is not going to be a free lunch uh, somebody's going to have to pay for it, and it's going to it's going to involve a certain amount of pain being inflicted on quite large numbers of people uh, in the form of higher prices or what have you. And if that's what we want to achieve as a political goal, it has to happen. But um, if you look at what's happened in the U.S. over biofuels pricing and 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 the and the RINs issues, I mean, you can take issue with the the mechanics of the RINs market, but the fact is, you they are designed to have high prices to force you to do things, and so you cannot have you know more expensive fuels being substituted for less expensive fuels without a financial incentive and that in the end is the is the biggest the biggest challenge to deal with is the is the fact that i don't think there's anywhere near the level of, of realism required to accept the costs of the transition that a lot of people are talking about i think that's the critical thing so trevor final word from you exactly what rob said uh, somebody has to pay and i think the easiest way in a way is to just have a carbon price uh, <laughs> because then you can actually compare like you, you put in a carbon price you can compare an oil to a gas to renewables uh, and, and net it off so what's your price forecast for carbon if you had to do a long-term <laughs> price forecast well it, i mean it's it is that great question and, and like you said i mean that is that that's the type of policy you need to have you know if you really want to seriously deal with this and and i think it's it's probably you know the markets are so regionalized and things like this but i think the eu ets you know is an aggressive is is functioning in against an aggressive target an aggressive set of targets right and even for this decade we see you know a real threat of eua prices going up towards uh, 100 euros uh, by the end of the decade uh, we've got it probably you know it started this this decade at about 25 euros, um, you know, and and the prices already at the moment, you know, are getting, you know, close to 40 almost. So, you know, prices are getting expensive and those prices are there, as Rob was saying, to incentivize people to do things. And, you know, and we, you know, think as you put in all of the policies that are necessary uh, in Europe and, and all of those restrictions into the carbon market, those carbon market prices are going to jump and you are going to see these really, really high prices. So I think we have something like an average probably for the decade of around 60 euros per ton. Uh, and given where they are, you know, at the moment, that does just point to very, very high prices in the second half because you are trying to do so many things so fast. Um, you need some very big price signals. And as Rob said, you know, where you will feel that is you will feel it on things like you know power price you know the, the the price of power into people's houses right because it will fall on the price of power it will fall on you know the, the price of industrial goods all of these things will be uh will have to reflect the price of carbon and that you know is inflationary and that is one of the you know the the, the kind of impacts of the energy transition we don't see being discussed very often is this kind of you know the the the, the inflationary impacts but also you know the, the kind of real potential that people even in developed you know even in the OECD could see a degree of fuel poverty because things have become so expensive i will end it at that thank you so much everybody for joining us and uh, thank you for listening